please grab um, your seats. And we're going to turn to John um, chapter 9. Uh, let me add my welcome to Johnny's. My name's John T. If I haven't met you personally, it's great to have you here. Um, John chapter 9. We're going to read um, verses 1 to 12. Um, and we're going to pick up where we left off um, in John's gospel. So if you've got that on a tablet or a Bible, that'd be fab. So John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva. He put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Um, I want you to imagine that you were being asked to choose seven songs, only seven. That if you were going to be um, cast adrift on a desert island, that they would be the seven songs that you would take with you. We could call it like desert island discs or something like that. What would you pick? I mean, there's plenty to choose, right? There's not a shortage of songs in the world. There's a bunch of songs. Which seven are you going to pick? Do you know, the interesting thing is, as you think about it, as you work hard to concentrate on which songs am I going to choose, let me tell you this. Every single one of those songs would matter to you. Imagine if I said, um, look, why did you pick that one? And you said, oh, I don't know, I just, just randomly picked it. That'd be rubbish. You've only got seven. Every single one would count, right? And you'd be able to tell me why you picked it, why it's special to you, why it matters. Okay, here's the deal, right? In John's gospel, there are seven miracles. Only seven. John has chosen seven and he's chosen those seven very specifically and very deliberately. I mean, there's also the resurrection. That makes it eight. And the resurrection is a pretty big miracle. So seven plus the resurrection. Now, it's not that there were only seven miracles to choose from. John had plenty of kind of material to work with. In fact, at the end of his gospel, in the, at the very end, he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs... So many that if I were to write them all down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world 
to, to write down everything Jesus said. So it's not that John was short of material, it's just that he picked seven. Why pick seven? And do you not think, as John thought over all the different miracles that he'd experienced as one of Jesus' disciples, do you not think that every single one of those seven would be precious? I'm going to include that one. So what I want you to do, what I, what I want us to do together, is to try and get into John's mind. Come on, John, why did you choose this miracle? Why this one? What is it about this one that really matters so much? Well, let's just have a look at where it comes in the story. Because in one sense, you could go, you know, it's, it's not that John was just writing his gospel. Da, 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 da. Oh, I remember. He healed a blind man. That was a cool one. I'll stick that down. That's not how John put his gospel together. He's carefully organized it. So at the end of chapter 8, if, you, if you've been around for a few weeks, you'll know this. I've banged on about this. From chapters 5 to 8, there's been an increasing hostility as Jesus has increasingly revealed himself to be the Son of God increasing hostility has been growing. So that at the end of chapter 8, in verse 58, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. There is Jesus' clear statement that he is the I am, the God, the eternal, the pre-existent son of God who has always existed, who has life in himself. I am, Jesus says. And their response, verse 59 At this, they picked up stones to stone him. Their response to what Jesus is saying is, we want to kill you. And the next person we meet in John's gospel is a blind man. That's not an accident, right? That is John putting his gospel together carefully. And he says, I'm going to... Include this miracle, this sign, because it is like a picture of what is happening in the pages of his gospel. And so this blind man becomes a picture for us of actually the state of humanity. This is the natural state of human beings. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. What I'm going to do is, having said all that, we're going to work our way just slowly through the text. I'm going to show you what it says in kind of five different points. We'll work our way through. We'll see what's going on. And we'll see why John thought this was so important. And John is a brilliant writer. I really hope you kind of enjoy the way that John tells this story. So let's, let's get into it. The first thing we're going to see is a desperate situation. Okay, that's the first big point. A desperate situation. As he went along, he saw a man... Blind from birth. Now, be easy to gloss over that quickly. We need to stop. We need to think. We need to try and enter into the story. Try and picture this man. Almost certainly he is sitting begging. There was no social security. There was no provision for his needs. His only hope was to sit begging. We know that he was begging because he talks about it later on. Here is a man in desperate need. And he's blind, but he's not just blind. He's been blind from birth. He's never been able to see. So he has never seen a sunrise. He's never seen the beauty of a flower. He's never seen a face crack into a smile. He's never seen it. Can you imagine that? His whole life is cloaked in darkness. 
He doesn't sin. And Jesus sees this man as he walks along. And he sees the desperate need. But the desperate need of this man, in one sense, we'd say, well, we can it's obvious to us. But John wants us to see something more. He wants to see in this man a reflection, actually, of all of us. He wants to see that this man is a picture of all of us by nature. We are all in desperate need. We all experience a blindness. Because we may say, well, hang on, that's a bit weird. We get that this man can't see, but I've seen a sunrise. When I'm talking about a spiritual blindness, an understanding, a seeing things as they truly are. One of the big themes of John's gospel is that people don't know. They don't see. You know how we, we equate seeing with knowledge, right? We use those words interchangeably. You know, we'll sometimes, okay, so imagine you're doing some maths. <laughs> Remember maths, homework? So you've been set your homework. You need to uh, solve this quadratic equation by completing the square. Does this bring back happy memories for anyone? Are you enjoying this? I, do, I was doing this last night. Okay, this is how I spent yesterday evening, completing quadratic equations by completing the square. <laughs> Still don't understand it. But you know that moment, don't you? You go, I just don't see it. I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't see it. And then when the penny drops, which sometimes it does, <laughs> I realize sometimes it doesn't, but sometimes it does. That's the moment at which you go, I see. By which you mean I understand, I, I get it. That which was confusing and dark and I couldn't understand was a mystery to me. I see. And John says that our problem as humanity when it comes to God is that we don't see. We don't understand. So right back at the start of his gospel in John chapter 1, um, John speaks of Jesus and says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him, didn't see him. So Jesus has come into this world, but people didn't see who he truly was. And although he spoke again and again, and he spoke of himself as the eternal Son of God, as the light bringing, eye-opening, glory-revealing, death-shattering King, as he spoke of his true identity, the people didn't see. They didn't get it. And that is a desperate situation. Now, of course, the problem is, to be told you're blind, to be told you don't understand, is actually quite offensive to us, isn't it? We don't like to be told that. We assume we know. No, I, I understand everything. I understand how reality works. I know. I can perceive. After all, we, we're enlightened, right? We live, I mean, we live after the bit of time called the Enlightenment. So surely we know. I mean, back in the medieval times, perhaps they were a bit blind. But not now because we've been enlightened. But the Bible's going to say, no, no. Your reason... Your mind, your intellect, it doesn't see. Just um, If you've got a Bible, turn over to 2 Corinthians 4. Just, just to show you, this is um, 
not me making, up, making more of this than is really there. I, I want to show you this really is what the Bible says about humanity. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, it has some remarkably strong words. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, it says this, The God of this age, by which he's talking about, um, he's talking about the devil, the enemy of God. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Don't gloss over that. Think about it. That is a very strong word. By nature, all of us have minds that are blinded by God's enemy, the devil. We're deceived. We don't see truth as it really is, such that we cannot see the light of Christ. So just like the blind man, here he is. There is nothing that blind man can do. He's blind. doesn't matter how much I shout at him. If I give him a book and say, read this, he says, I can't. I say, well, try harder. Open your eyes. Come on, read it. He can't. He's blind. There is nothing he can do. That is the desperate situation of the blind man. And the Bible is saying that is our problem when it comes to God. We cannot see him. We cannot know him. We're blinded. You know, this is very important for us to get to grips with. I know it's not particularly upbuilding and um, affirming of us as human beings. But you know, one of the things we often do is we, we sort of say, well, God is hiding. Here's the problem, right? Here am I in all my enlightened thinking. Uh, and, but God seems to hide. If there is a God, he's hiding from me. And so I need to try and find him. But you see, that's the wrong way around. God is not hiding. The problem is that we are blind. Look, if you, if you play hide and seek with someone who is blind, you don't have to hide. Because they can't see to seek. And you could be standing right in the middle of the room. And they could say, whoa, you've hidden, you've hidden really well. But you haven't. And here's what the Bible is saying. It's where Johnny started our service. He started with those words from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. God is not hiding. God's made himself known. He's shown it in the creation that he's made. And then he sent his eternal son into the world to show us what God is like. He's not hiding from you. It's not his problem. The problem is that we are blind. We cannot see. That's the desperate situation. And it is very humbling. And that is why so many people in London will not see Jesus for who he truly is. They'll scoff at him and they'll write him off and they'll laugh at you for following him. But what, are, what are you doing that for? You have to remember that by nature we are blind. We cannot see. It is a desperate situation. But there's some really good news coming, as you can probably guess. But let's move on to the second, but that was just verse one. Let's move on to the second thing. Verse two, you find a wrong assumption. His disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is how it goes, right? We're all used to this sort of thinking. This man's uh, suffering. 
Come on, Jesus. Uh, what sin led to that? They see a very close connection between sin, individual sin, and suffering. If you sin, you get punished and you suffer. I guess this is what we would call karma, right? You get what you deserve. And, and I, it's funny. I guess most of us would say, um, no, we don't really believe in karma. Uh, we're, we're too sensible for that sort of thing. And yet we still find ourselves falling into that way of thinking. You know, have you ever heard someone say, um, what did I do to deserve this? You know, you, you're doing something good. And, you know, so here I am. I decide I'm going to take someone a meal because I feel like I want to care well for them. So I'm cycling on my bike, and I get a puncture. And there's something in you that feels morally offended. I was doing something good. How? This shouldn't happen. Look, if I was on my way to rob a bank, fine. I get it. But I was trying to help someone. Why did this happen? Because we still have this kind of worldview built within us, this worldview of karma that you get what you deserve. And that's how the disciples are thinking. This guy must have done something bad. He's being punished. I mean, it's, it's, if you ever watch The Sound of Music, you should, you should watch The Sound of Music. You've never seen it. Genuinely, it's an excellent uh, piece of art. Um, but one of the songs in The Sound of Music is um, Maria, when she eventually falls in love with the captain. Spoiler. Um, she... She's very happy, and she sings, somewhere in my past or childhood, I must have done something good. If I've got this wonderful thing happening to me, there must have been something in my past. Or, I mean, not that I'm saying that you build your theology on sound of music, but it's sort of ingrained in us. Good people deserve good things. It's sort of we, how we think the world should work. But that is a wrong understanding of the world. That is a wrong worldview. That is not the worldview the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach that there is a connection between sin and suffering. And sometimes there is a specific connection between this sin and the consequences of that bringing suffering. That sometimes is true. But more often than not, there is no connection between the sin and the suffering. And that's what Jesus says here. Not karma. That is a wrong assumption. And it may be... I really just want to say this, because it may be that for some of you, or maybe there's one person sitting here in this room or listening to this on the live stream, and you are haunted by the fact that your suffering is because of a specific sin that you have done. And I want to say to you that that may well not be the case. And you must not carry that burden with you. And it may be that God's brought you to church today because he wants to say to you, that is not What's going on? So they get this wrong assumption. They think of this karma thing. Of course, many in our world would reject karma and say, no, no, we live in a world of pure chance and pitiless indifference, which actually is a terrifying worldview as well, isn't it? That everything that happens to you is just luck. So how come this good thing happened? I just got lucky. How come this person's blind? They're just unlucky. That's a horrible worldview, terrifying. And Jesus is going to say it's not that either. No, Jesus is going to say, and this is the third thing, verse 3, there's a greater purpose. There's a greater purpose to what's going on with this blind man. Look how clearly Jesus says it. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, 
but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus says it's not a punishment for a particular sin, but neither is it a random bit of bad luck. There is a purpose even in this suffering. And here actually, although at first sight it may sound a bit like, oh, I'm not sure if I like that. Actually, here is where true comfort in suffering is to be found. In knowing that there is a God of love who can purpose good even in our suffering. Isn't that what we heard from Ellen in her testimony? Even through the most terrible agony and suffering, God is able to purpose good. That is not to belittle the suffering. That's not to say that there are no tears and there's no confusion and there's no anguish and there's no sorrow. But God knows what he's doing. There is a purpose. And so Jesus says this man in all his suffering and sorrow is going to experience the very works of God. He's going to experience the very power of God to open his eyes. Jesus said this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. And what if the suffering that we experience and the pain that we face is the means by which God might display his work even in us as he carries us through those sufferings? And so Jesus talks about this greater purpose, this work of God. What is the work of God? It is Jesus, the light, coming into a world of darkness. It is Jesus taking people out of darkness and bringing them into light. It is Jesus taking people out of death and bringing them into life. That is what we've seen over and over again in John. This is the work of God that Jesus came to do. And so he says in verse 4, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Come on, this is what I'm about, Jesus says. This is what I do. And I'm going to give you a demonstration of it in this man so that you can understand what I've come to do for all who will trust me. And he says something weird. Just when we were like, okay, this is fine. Then he says, night is coming. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. You go, what do you mean? I love this as John records Jesus' words. There's a puzzle here. We're, like, we're supposed to think. We're supposed to work it out. What does he mean? Night, night. What do you think he means? Don't let me do all the work. What do you think? What what night is he talking about? These are the sort of questions you ask as you read the Bible. You've got to engage with it. You've got to see the puzzles. You've got to think about it and work at it. And so I've sat this week scratching my head and talking to the other guys in the office. Me and Ewells chatted about it over lunch on Wednesday. Scratching heads going, what does he mean? (laughs) And I read some books and they all disagree on different things. And then I discovered something. I discovered that John tells us what he means. Yeah, that's good, which helps. Because if you turn over a few pages to John 13, in John 13, listen to what he says. John 13, um, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Let me go from verse 27. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. 
Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. There it is. What was, John, what was Jesus referring to when he said, night is coming? John says, it's night, and it was night. You see, the night that Jesus is speaking of is that night, that moment when he will be betrayed and handed over and crucified and die. When the light of the world will be hung on a cross to die. That's the night he's talking about. Night is coming, Jesus is saying. So even as he's dealing with this blind man, he, and, and he's saying, I've come to do these works. I've come to open the eyes of the blind. I've come to take people out of darkness into light. Even as he's saying that, on the horizon, he knows that night is coming. He knows his death is coming. It kind of overshadows everything he does in his life. It's always there. Night is coming, Jesus says. He knows that night is coming. And he speaks of his death. While I'm, the light of, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. But he knows he's going to die. But here's the cool thing, although I think this is cool. In John's gospel, it doesn't end with night. In John's gospel, you get night, but then in John chapter 21, well, John chapter 20, listen, listen, listen. early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, the women went to the tomb. And what did they find when they went to the tomb? They found he was gone. They found he was alive again. And then chapter 21 starts, um, sorry, chapter 21 verse 4, early in the morning. Again, early in the morning, early in the morning. Why? Because John wants to say a new day's come. So you have the night, the night of Jesus dying on the cross. But that's not the end of the story because you can't kill the light of the world. Because the light of the world will rise again and the whole new day starts. So we don't live in the night. The night was the time when Jesus died. Because he's raised, we now live in the new day. The new day that has dawned. Where Jesus, the light of the world is risen and is king, and one day will return, and then we will enjoy the full light of day. And all of that, Jesus is saying, as he heals this blind man, he knows that this is just a picture of the bigger thing he's come to do, to bring day. This is the great purpose of Jesus, to be the light of the world, who will experience and suffer night, but will defeat the night and bring day so that we can live in the light, so that we can have our eyes open, so that we can know God, so that we can say, I see, I see. Fourth thing is a puzzling miracle. So Jesus said all this stuff, and we worked hard at that, and then it gets weird again. <laughs> After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. That's weird. That's not COVID safe. That's very much against regulations. 
And it wasn't some kind of ritual. Sometimes you read books and go, well, this is quite normal in those. It wasn't normal. That's never been normal, right? Why does he do that? I'm fairly confident that Jesus could have just said, uh, be opened. And the man would have been healed. And yet Jesus does this thing. Spits on the ground, makes the mud, puts it in the man's eyes. Now he's got dirt all in his eyes. He seems to have made, the, he's made it worse, not better. And then he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. <laughs> You've got to ask the question, why? Come on, why would you do it like that? And again, I've scratched my head. I've worked at it. I've puzzled it this week. And again, again, I keep coming back to this idea that there's this huge emphasis that Jesus wants him to wash. He wants him to wash. He's going to open his eyes by getting him to wash. That's not an obvious connection, but that seems to be the connection Jesus wants to make. So he shoves the mud in his face. Now his face is all dirty and he's got it all in his eyes. Then he says, go to the pool of Siloam. And John tells us that that word means scent. Now immediately you go, scent, scent, scent. Well, all the way through John's gospel, that word scent has been massive. Jesus is sent. Jesus is sent from the Father. He's the sent one. He's sent, sent, sent. That's who Jesus is. Now Jesus is saying, go to the pool that's called scent. There's a clue there. This pool, in some way, is kind of a picture of Jesus, the sent one. And so he's saying, go to the pool and wash. That's how you see. How do you get your eyes opened? You go to the pool called scent and you wash. Then your eyes are opened. And so it's emphasized, so the man went, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. When his friends and neighbors then ask him, what on earth happened to you? He replies, verse 11, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. How is it that Jesus is going to open the eyes of the blind by washing them clean? What is that connection? I think what John is showing us is that our problem, our blindness, is a result of our uncleanness. That we need to be washed. So because we have sinned, because we have turned away from the God who made us, that is why we are blind. And our sin gets in our eyes and stops us from seeing God as he truly is. So what we need is to be washed clean. So that when we wash, we can see. And Jesus, if you go back to John 13, we won't turn back there now. But in that chapter that we looked at just a minute ago, what's he done just before night? He's washed his disciples. He's washed their feet. And Peter says, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, but if you don't let me wash you, then I have no part in you. So we're putting all these puzzling pieces together and we're building this picture where we say all of humanity is blind. We cannot see. We cannot understand God. We cannot fix the problem ourselves. And Jesus has come to do that eye-opening work for us. And the way that he does that work is by washing us clean. And the way he washes us clean is by going through night of the cross. 
That's the great work Jesus came to do. And it's when Jesus dies on the cross that he does what is necessary to wash us clean. Look, if the floor of your flat is dirty, this is free advice, right? You get a bucket, and in the bucket you put some clean water, and you get a mop, <laughs> and you stick the... Da, 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 da. You do the cleaning thing, right? And at the end, when you've finished, and if you've done it right, you end up with a beautifully clean floor. And what else do you end up with? A bucket of dirty water. You see, that's how cleaning something works. This was, this was dirty, this was clean. So what happens in order to make this clean, the dirt goes there. And now it's clean. And when Jesus came to die on the cross, he came to wash us clean so that our eyes could be opened. And in order to wash us clean, our dirt, our filth, our sin was taken by him on himself. He became unclean. He became dirty so that we could be clean. That's why he had to go through the night of death. And then he rose again on Easter Sunday morning because he defeated sin. He defeated darkness. He defeated the night. And he rose to new day. This is so good. This is what it's about. This is the work Jesus came to do. And this puzzling miracle, when you look at the details, it's all here. And that's why he sticks mud in his eyes. And the fifth thing then is this glorious reality. The man can see. He can see. Can you imagine him looking around? Can you imagine the, the brightness of the colors? Imagine the first sunrise that he sees. Imagine the first smile that he sees. <laughs> I see it. And when someone meets Jesus, that is our experience. We say, I God, I see you. And I know you. I see what I never saw before. That's what this is all about. That's the work Jesus came to do. So how do we, let's, let's just apply this, let's land this um, and think about what difference this makes. Firstly, this is, this is very humbling. This should cause us to be humble. You know, if, if we see anything of God, if we know anything, if we understand anything of God, it's not because we're so bright and clever. It's not because we worked it out. It's not because we're awesome. It's not because we're good. It's because he opened your eyes. You would know nothing of God if he didn't open your eyes. Everything you know of God should cause you to fall on your knees and worship. Say, thank you. Thank you that I can see. Like that man, as his eyes are opened, I can see, I can see. That's how we should be in worship of God, as we thank Jesus. And I think it means that we should crave that we would see more and more. Do you know, if you're anything like me, you still find that you sin. And when you sin, don't you find that your eyes get cloudy? It's like you get mud in your eyes. You've got dirt in your eyes. 
You can't see God as clearly because you're busy doing what you want. You're chasing what you want. And, and suddenly you begin to have a distorted view of God. And you think he's, so, oh, I don't really care about God. And you've lost sight of him. You can't see him anymore. And this miracle tells you, you need to have your eyes open. Jesus died to wash you clean. Come to him today and say, Jesus, I, I, I've lost sight of you. Wash me, wash me. I want to see you. And look, for the next four weeks, we're going to be locked down. We could be miserable about that, couldn't we? We could stomp around and go, oh, stupid virus and government and stupid everything. Which, you know, I'm tempted. It's my natural. That's my first instinct. It's, that was quite, uh, that was quite um, soothing, actually, um, <laughs> to share that with you. But here's a better idea. How could you invest the next four weeks? Yeah, some of our rhythms are going to change. Some of our patterns are going to change. I get some of you are going to be more busy. I understand that. Some of us will have, be less busy. We'll have more evenings in. We'll have more time. What are you going to do with it? Why not invest that? Why not invest it in getting to know Jesus better? Why not invest it in asking that your eyes will be open to see more of Jesus? Can you imagine in four weeks' time, if your response, you came out to church and said, I got to know Jesus better in the last four weeks. What a great use of lockdown. The government is locking us down so we can know Jesus better. And we do our couch to 5K. You know, we're sort of off we go. Well, what about a kind of couch to quiet time or a couch to know Jesus better? And you don't even have to leave your couch. You can, this is so much better than a couch to 5K where you have to go outside and get wet. You can stay inside and get to know Jesus better. Seriously, let's, let's let this story excite us that we might see more. What could you do? And I want to encourage you, to, seriously, what could you do with the next four weeks? And maybe there's a book you've been meaning to read. Why not get it out and read it? Plan to read it. Spend some time, set aside time to pray. Don't set your alarm later. Set your alarm at the same time as normal. Get up and have some more time to read the Bible. If you haven't got a book to read or you're not sure what to read, over there on that table, there's some books. There's a pile of books. You can take one of those. Um, the smaller pile is, the pile is Linda's books. The bigger pile is my books. That's because this morning um, I offered books, and uh, they were the same size pile this morning. Um, that's okay. I'm, I'm dealing with that. <laughs> now, it's not because we think... It's, it's, the only reason there are books is because they're the only books we had lying around. We had a pile of them each because it's the sort of thing you do. And Boris didn't give us a lot of warning. Look, if you want to take a book, you could take one of those. Take it for free. Go read it. If they run out or if you're watching at home thinking, well, that's not fair. I'm at home. Fine. Email in. We'll send you a book. We want to give you something to read, something that will help you to love Jesus more. I don't care how we do that, but please, let's not waste these next four weeks. This is an opportunity, and this story is here to say Jesus is the eye-opening, glory-revealing, majestic, eternal Son of God. He wants to open our eyes to see Him more. Oh, I, I need to stop. I've got all carried away. But this is true for our friends. This is true for our city. This is true for everything. And it may be that for someone sitting here today, you think, I've never had my eyes opened. I don't know this Jesus. Guess what? 
Today's the day. Jesus says, I'll open your eyes. I've experienced the night. I've taken your sin so that I can wash you clean, open your eyes, and you can know God. Come to him today. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song, um, which I hope will be a heartfelt cry from each of us this afternoon, that says, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. Is that a cry you can make this afternoon? Is that your longing? There is no greater thing in all the world than to see Christ more clearly. Let's pray together, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this isn't just a random miracle where Jesus did a nice thing for a blind man. But Jesus knew as he healed the eyes of this blind man, he knew that he was going to the night of the cross. He knew that he was the sent one who would die to wash away our sin and to open our eyes. Lord, we are in desperate need. And without Christ, we would see nothing. Lord, thank you for all that you have done in opening our eyes, and we want more. We ask, Lord Jesus, open the eyes of our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts. We want to see you. In your name we pray.